Good morning and welcome to First Unitarian U Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. Uh, my name is Susan Yarbrough, and I'm the very lucky student intern minister in this dynamic and activist con congregation. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds, and we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of reason to faith and welcomes people from all theistic and non-theistic traditions, including but not limited to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, neo-paganism, agnosticism, and atheism. I'd like to extend an especially warm welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone, so in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. <laughs> The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and we light it at the beginning of every worship service. As Kai Flannery leads us, let's say together the words printed in your bulletin. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship today comprises one selection from the Hebrew scriptures and another from the Christian scriptures, each of them rendered in contemporary language. The first is from the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah and says this, That which is holy doesn't come and go, doesn't get tired out, doesn't pause to catch a breath. In fact, what is holy energizes those who get tired and stumble and fall. Indeed, those who serve what is holy get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and do not grow weary, and when they walk, they do not faint. The second reading is from the first chapter of the book of James, and it says this, Friends, consider it an enormous gift when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you can become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Here ends the reading from two of our sources. Come, let us worship together as a people who renew our strength by serving what is holy. Every Unitarian Universalist church goes through a lengthy process of developing its own mission statement. We've written ours on the wall, upper wall to your left, and we say it together every Sunday to remind each other of our communal purpose. Let's do that now as Kai leads us. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our second reading this morning is a contemporary translation of verses 2 through 5 of the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke in the Christian Scriptures. Then Jesus told them this story. There was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought, 
and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him, saying, My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day. But after this went on and on, he finally said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, and even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, my reputation will be ruined. Here ends the reading from another of our sources. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it in his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it's through meditative stillness or simply following our breath to a place of calmness. After today's prayer, you're invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, hope, memory, concern, or celebration. Simple directions that will accommodate everyone are easily found in, ita in italics in your order of service. Please join me now in quiet reflection. God of many names, whose highest name and form is human love, thank you for all the people gathered here today. As we stand together in this faith, and look ahead to the long course we must run in the service of what is just and merciful, we are disheartened and discouraged. To tell you the truth, we are tired before we even start. Help us navigate this strange territory. Remind us to encourage each other, to slow down and help those who grow faint, and to offer to each other places of respite and rest. And as we search for hope, teach us that it is more than just an aspiration or a dream, that it is not just a commodity for us to use, but that it's a way of being, a life force, and a gift that we create. Help us to find this hope in the step next taken, the celebrations of small victories obtained, the sight of the finish line, and the communion of the hearts and souls of those who travel with us. Amen. Thank you all for being here today, and thank you for letting me be here. As of right this minute, I'm scheduled to graduate from seminary in 92 days and six hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. And as I've gone through all my course materials in preparation for meeting with our Unitarian Universalist credentialing body in Boston next month, I've been rereading the many papers I've written for my classes at Meadville Lombard. Most of the papers were about things you would have expected them to be about, an exegesis or close analysis of four Old Testament passages in my Hebrew Scriptures course, an original and archivally researched paper about UU history in my history and polity class, 
and a paper about a religious tradition other than my own in my global religions class. I I chose the Baha'i faith for that, and that was really interesting. But the paper that surprised me the most was the first one for our preaching class, and the assigned topic was Your Source of Hope. As you probably noticed over the past few years, I tend to preach about what I need to learn, and that's been especially true of sermons about welcoming inner and outer strangers, grace and gratitude, the gifts of age, and confronting racism with spoken words. So here's another one in that category of what I need to learn, and it's about how and where we can find hope for the very long track toward a state, a country, and a world that are bent on justice, equity, and compassion instead of on greed, xenophobia, American exceptionalism, and so-called alternate facts. Many years and many pounds ago, I ran marathons. What was I thinking? (laughs) The the years ago were about 35, and the pounds ago were, let's just say they were more than the years. I ran my last one when I was about 40 years old, but every time I see a marathon happening on the streets or on television, I still yearn to do just one more, even though I know that the orthopedic surgeon who replaced both of my worn-out knees five years ago would say really ugly things to me. (laughs) I took up running in 1975, shortly after I moved to New York City to begin my first job as a lawyer. The running boom was well underway. Most of my co-workers at the Legal Aid Society were into it, and I saw it as an easy way to stay fit, especially since health clubs in Manhattan that had places to swim or play racquetball were way too expensive for me. For a mere $28, I bought a good pair of running shoes, which today cost $143, and began training on an indoor YMCA track that was 22 laps to the mile. (laughs) It was like a squirrel cage. Uh, I started with 10 laps, increased the distance by two laps daily, and within a few months, I was running six miles a day. And not only did I love it, but I was also naive enough to believe that more is better. So when a friend suggested that we train for a marathon, 26.2 miles, I was the perfect sucker. Before long, I was running 10 miles every other day, and when one of those days fell on a Sunday, the friend and I would take the A train up to 175th Street in far north Manhattan, disembark, walk to a place under the George Washington Bridge, and then run 18 miles down the island to Battery Park, ending with a glorious view of the Statue of Liberty. After about eight months of this, I felt ready to run a marathon, and I'll never forget the exhilaration of doing the first one, and especially of completing it. Like with all sports, there are nuggets of common wisdom about marathon running. One of my favorites was, start slowly and taper off rapidly. The the idea being that tortoises generally finish in greater numbers than jackrabbits. And there were also other bits of sound advice. Have the right equipment. Practice sensible nutrition. Pace yourself and don't be embarrassed to walk if you need to. And run well within yourself. 
which means to pay attention to how your mind and body are feeling and not be distracted by everything that's going on around you. As I keep on with life, I've developed an interest in transferable skills, those things that, with slight modification, can be useful in situations that superficially seem to be poles apart, such as making a summation to a jury and preaching a sermon, or listening to testimony from a refugee and hearing the confession of a dying hospital patient, or running a marathon and living a life of endurance based on hope. So what I want to do today is to take a quick look at a few of the physical training tips for going the distance, analogize them to some useful spiritual practices, and then talk about the role of hope in all of this, how hope is absolutely necessary if we're going to resist the devastation going on around us, but also how hope is not enough. First, some of the key training tips. Pace yourself. I've heard a number of people express some fear that the initial momentum of actions and demonstrations against unjust policies and executive orders will be hard to sustain over the next four years. And in some respects, I share that concern, for even though all of the protests have been heartening, many people are still in a reactive state of mind, and I think we all know that the emotional and spiritual energy required to sustain any fire of commitment is enormous, and that burnout and compassion fatigue overwhelm many people. This is what Reverend Barnhouse was talking about last Sunday in her sermon about the Buddhist principle of right effort. The lesson here is to pace ourselves both individually and collectively and to honor the different talents, abilities, and speeds of those with whom we share common cause. I've been interested to see this theme, theme appearing in many places lately, such as blogs, Facebook postings, and op-ed pieces. Recently, for example, the filmmaker Michael Moore reminded us to use the choral practice of staggered breathing to keep the music going. Take a breath when you need to, knowing that the chorus will keep singing, then rejoin when you can so others can take a breath. And UU Minister Cynthia Landrum recommends following your expertise, setting your limits, including your social media limits, cutting back when necessary, finding the places where victory is possible, and engaging in communal and private spiritual practices such as we do every Sunday in this space. Have the right equipment. In other words, gather information, check it out, discard misinformation and disinformation and alternate facts, transform what you've learned into knowledge about what is really being handed down by those with power, and with that knowledge, cultivate wisdom and compassion about how these things affect the hearts and souls of yourself and every person on earth. Practice good nutrition. Last August, as I finished all my academic courses at seminary, my mental fatigue was vast, and I wondered how I would ever gather the moxie to make it through this final year. I kept telling myself that my tiredness was because I had taken overloads in the spring and fall and summer semesters, 
had not had a break of more than a few days in two years, and was, after all, getting older and being less active physically. But I knew I was fibbing to myself, and I finally had to admit that the reason I was so fatigued is that I was consuming spiritual snack food instead of the real thing. My time of reading and prayer in the mornings had grown markedly shorter. I was rushing through some habitual gratitude practices. I was spending way too much time playing words with friends. And I was not listening to God or to people as well or as deeply as I could. Probably because of my disappointment with myself, I I didn't tell anyone about my spiritual anorexia. But in the midst of all of this, a friend who was a Mennonite pastor began talking about the concept of manna, the food the Israelites in the Old Testament found on the ground every morning during their 40 years of travel in the desert. The thing about manna, she said, is that it doesn't last The books of Exodus and Numbers describe it as being a fine, flaky, frost-like thing on the ground that had to be collected before it was melted by the heat of the sun. It's there every day, and it must be ingested every day to keep us fed and keep us going on this long journey. And as she continued to riff about the sustaining property and power of daily bread on the ground right in front of us, I realized that I needed to consciously set aside the metaphorical Cheetos I'd been sporadically consuming, notice the wealth of spiritual food around me, reach down and pick it up, and ingest it every day, just as surely as I do fresh orange juice, a crisp apple, and good coffee each morning. In other words, the nourishment I need to join with you in bending the arc of the universe toward justice and compassion can't be found in a quick glance at a book entitled Thought for the Day for Busy People, but rather in a regular and sustained reflection about values, ethics, and what we hold sacred. Be aware of your surroundings and the people around you, but run well within yourself. During my first marathon, I got caught up in the strength and beauty and variety of the thousands of moving bodies around me and in the yelling of the crowds who lined the streets in all five boroughs of New York. Along about mile six, I realized that adrenaline was causing me to run way too fast for my fitness level, so I had to slow down and walk for a mile. And then I got caught up again in externals, And somewhere around mile 13, I was looking around instead of down and went sliding hard onto my seat when a discarded paper water cup got snarled up in the tread of one of my shoes. What I learned here is that the race is both solitary and communal and that it's important for each of us to establish a center of calmness within ourselves to periodically tune out the noise of the crowd and check in with ourselves, and to think deeply about whether any proposed action or activity expresses the passions and convictions that reside in the core of our inner life. Assuming that we've equipped ourselves with knowledge and wisdom, practice good spiritual nutrition, pace ourselves, 
and maintain a sense both of, differenti- both of differentiation from and community with those around us, what else is needed for the kind of endurance that will enable us to finish in good shape and with energy left over for the next task? I want to suggest here that the answer is hope, but that hope itself is not enough, and neither is raw persistence. But before I get to that, I'd like for us to take another look at the parable that was our second reading, the one about the persistent widow and the irritable judge. As we approach the parable, it's a good idea to try to set aside our contemporary social assumptions and projections about widows and judges, and to try to see the story with fresh eyes. You'll notice that we know nothing about the widow or the judge outside of the bare five-sentence story. The parable is not set in any particular location in the Roman Empire, and perhaps the, the widow is poor and is pestering the judge in the marketplace, or perhaps she's wealthy and privileged and has the time for appearing at his workplace every day. Although context is important in, ex- in examining any text from any wisdom tradition, what's most significant for our purposes this morning is the relationship between the widow and the judge and what that can teach us about shaping our goals and our relationship to those who are currently in power. In the parable, the judge is described, and in fact he describes himself in, the interior, in his interior monologue, as having no respect for what is divine or what is human. The widow pesters him for justice against her unidentified adversary and comes across as a bit of a bully and a blackmailer. The judge is something of a sociopath, and he eventually caves in and gives her what she wants, not out of some sense of justice, but partly to get rid of her, and partly because he doesn't want her to put unfavorable things about him on whatever the equivalent of Facebook and Yelp were 20 centuries ago. The interesting thing about parables is that they are parabolic. In ancient Greece, certain rhetorical terms arose in conjunction with mathematical concepts. For those weirdos of us who relished our eighth grade geometry classes, and I'm one of them, we, we probably remember that there are three geometric curves known as conic sections, an ellipse, a parabola, and a hyperbola. The characteristics of each are analogous to those of the linguistic ellipsis, parable, and hyperbole. And just as the geometric parabola resembles an open U-shape, the succinct didactic short stories of Jesus, known as parables, usually are open-ended in their meaning. This is certainly true of the parable of the persistent widow and the annoyed judge. In one sense, we can read the parable as saying that persistence will bring about justice. On the other hand, the parable can leave a bad taste in our mouth, for the judge does not change or become interested in justice. And it's also not clear at all whether what the widow wanted was something more than mere personal revenge against someone who had done her wrong, or whether her victory was a principled one with wider applications. What the parable says to me is that persistence is a two-edged sword, 
and that how we engage in it and how we use the outcomes of it are as important as the outcomes themselves. Our next national election is three years and eight months away, and persistence is essential if we are to go the distance. It's possible, of course, for us to gut this out with a grim determination that will corrode our spirits. But it's also possible to approach this with a realistic hope that will keep us energized and celebrating the passing of each mile marker, just as marathon runners do. When I was a judge on the immigration court, I saw many people who had come to the United States illegally just to work and support their families. And they and their lawyers often uh, filed asylum applications simply to buy time for the person to make a few dollars under the table. After hearing those cases, I would have to deny the applications because being poor is not a statutory ground for granting asylum. On many occasions, after summations by the attorneys on each side, the lawyer for the immigrant would say, why don't you just grant the application? It will give my client two years to work illegally while the government appeals your decision. What's the harm in that? My reply was always the same. I'm not going to do that, counsel, because I don't believe in giving people false hope. Hope has many forms. There's the false hope that I don't believe in and that does harm to many people, not only in courtrooms, but also in medical situations and in political arenas. And there's also a kind of vacant negative hope that says, not this, not that, not him, anything and anyone but him and those he has assembled as advisors. This is the so-called hope that leaves us with an empty victory and with nothing to put in place after the policy we despised is overturned by a court or the demagogue in power is voted out of office. In other words, merely, merely wanting our side to win bespeaks a certain emotional and spiritual self-centeredness that disregards the needs of all the souls around us, discourages them from joining us, robs our ethics and values of vitality and inclusion, and skews our moral compass far away from true north. I believe so strongly that we are better than this, that our creativity and vision are uniquely activated by adversity, that our hearts are greatly moved by the despair that fills the lives of those whom Jesus referred to as the least of these, and that we are called by a tenacious faith and a realistic hope in ourselves and in other people of goodwill to do what we can communally to consider the greater good as we run this long race and repair the world. In his wonderful 1964 book, The Theology of Hope, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who is now almost 91 years old, speaks of hope as the principle of revolutionary openness to the future. I love that. Hope is the principle of revolutionary openness to the future. And he also argues that hope strengthens faith, aids us in living a life of love, and creates in us a passion for the possible. Most importantly, 
Moltmann believes that it is the job of people who are impatient and dissatisfied with the status of the world to become hopers. He actually uses it, hopers, who engage in active participation in the current world in order to speed the coming of a better world. These are people who do not focus on the future fulfillment of an ideal world or the complete solution to every social problem. Instead, they see themselves as part of a constantly dynamic process toward the good, and they engage in this process. They have joy in the moment as they are carried and sustained by their fluid, evolving hope. November 3rd, 2020 is 1,354 days away. We have such a long way to go, and like many of you, I am greatly in need of fitness, persistence, and hope. I don't follow many bloggers, but one of my favorites is the Quaker teacher, Judy Sorum Brown. In a recent posting, she said this, I thought that the work that must be done was a marathon, but then I learned it was a relay, and that changed everything. Between now and then, as we strengthen our spiritual fitness and pace ourselves in our persistence, may we deepen our sense of community. And as we shape and nurture a clear and positive hope that will carry us to the finish line, may we run and not be weary, knowing that every step we take is in service to all that is holy, all that is sacred, and all that is our life together. Amen. Our formal worship today is almost ended, and in celebration of our time together, we extinguish the chalice with the words printed in the order of service. Please join Kai as she leads us. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And now may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this courageous and resilient congregation. May we find hope in the ground beneath our feet and the bedrock of our souls. And in Hebrew we say, Let us bless the source of life whose flame kindles our commitment to search for ever more ways of living our freedom and sharing our hope. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.